All right. Sorry for the delay. We are in Matthew chapter 14. So Matthew 14. We are uh, beginning in verse 22. One thing I do want to mention, one other announcement. I think everyone here already knows about it that needs to know, but if you are interested in membership here, or if you want to learn more about who our church is, what we believe, our history, and what membership is like here, um, right after the worship service, Pastor Dustin Saunders is going to be leading a new members class. So um, now you know. So right after the service, it starts at 1030, it should be out before lunchtime. Uh, so Matthew chapter 14, and we're in verse 22 and following. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Hope you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 14, verse 22 and following. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. Would you reveal yourself to us in your word this morning? Would you increase our faith this morning? Would you help us to know you better? Christ's name, amen. Well, this is now the second water-crossing miracle that we have in Matthew's gospel. The first one was back in Matthew chapter 8. I don't know if you remember it. That was last August for us here at Del Cerro. If you're reading through the book of Matthew, it was probably yesterday. But uh, the disciples are there in the boat with Jesus Jesus is exhausted. He falls asleep. A storm rises up. The disciples freak out. They wake Jesus up, and Jesus calms the storm. And at the end of that, you should be care careful to, to note this, at the end of that event, the disciples say, who is this? They're asking the question, who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? 
And what was important then that we saw was that Matthew wanted to show us, as the readers of this gospel, that the disciples didn't yet understand who Jesus was. But we also saw in that text how the Old Testament teaches us that only God himself has power over the wind and the waves. And and Matthew was teaching us by giving us those Old Testament flashbacks that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king. And he's also God, the one who has power over the wind and the waves. And and if, if you've forgotten, like I did, This week when I was studying this, here's a quick refresher of of some of those Old Testament texts. We read a couple of them already. In in the Exodus, God, through Moses, splits open the Red Sea. And he leads his people through. God has power over the seas. When, When Israel, after going through there and then going through the wilderness, when they get to the Jordan River and they're about to cross into the Promised Land, God, through Joshua, splits open the Jordan River. And the people walk through on dry land. In Isaiah 51, the prophet Isaiah tells us that it is the Lord, it's Yahweh alone, who makes a way. He makes a way for the redeemed to pass over the sea. In Psalm 29, we read this this morning, the the Lord sits enthroned. There's your kingly language. He's enthroned over the flood. His voice is over the waters. In Psalm 65, it is God who stills the seas. And then we can add a few more this week. Because with this week's text, we we can see a few more Old Testament flashbacks. Josh read for us from Isaiah 43. as our call to worship. And what do we see there? The Lord, Yahweh, creator God, makes a way in the sea. His path is through the waters. In Psalm 77, this one's particularly applicable to this week's text. In Psalm 77, the psalmist says about the Lord, Yahweh, he says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And this one is my favorite, Job. He tells us in Job 9.8, he says, God alone tramples the seas. He tramples the waves of the seas. I like that tramples. And, 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 the, and the word picture, or the picture that comes to your mind immediately is Jesus walking on the water, isn't it? I mean, what else can come to your mind with that word, trample? Between both of these events, Matthew 8 and here in Matthew 14, Matthew's showing us that Jesus is the Lord. He is God. He's creator God. He's Yahweh. By his word, in Matthew 8, he commands the seas. And by his power, in Matthew 14, he makes a path through them. So think think, think this way. If Matthew's only aim in writing this gospel for us is to tell us who Jesus is through factual evidence, then he could have shortened both of these events to just like newspaper headlines. So the one in Matthew 8 would say, Jesus calms the winds and the waves by a word. And the newspaper headline from this week would say, Jesus walked across the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. And if we only had headlines, we, as readers of the Bible, given the whole 
counsel of God's word, we would have all the facts available to us to see that Jesus is the one who fulfills those Old Testament images of who God is. But we don't only have headlines, do we? Matthew doesn't only tell us who Jesus is in this event. Matthew tells us what Jesus is like. See, Matthew's aim in writing this gospel for us is not just so that we would know who Jesus is and what happened to him. It's not just a history book. It's not an encyclopedia. Matthew's aim is that we would know him. And to know Jesus, we have to see how he interacts with the people that he loves. So, so while I, I really, as your pastor, I really want you to recognize the, the, the big picture theological significance of Jesus walking across the water. That's really important. He is the redeeming, promise-keeping creator God who's come into, in the flesh to bring his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom to earth. Do not overlook that. Don't overlook that, that reality, that continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We would be, we'd be missing out on, on, on what God is trying to reveal to us if we overlook that. But also, you've got to know that if we only came to that conclusion, we would be missing out on the personal nature of what God is revealing to us. What's Jesus like? What's he like? What does it mean to know him? What's it like to be his, his disciple? What's he like? See, God has not revealed himself to us in an encyclopedia. He's revealed, to, he's revealed himself to us in a story. And that story, co-written, co-written by him, it, it enables us to do more than know about him. It enables us to know him. So let's go now to this story, this true story, and get to know our God and Savior. In verse 22, open your Bibles, please keep them open. We're in verse 22, Matthew 14, verse 22, and we see there that Jesus is like a shepherd. Look at the text. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat, go to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. That word immediately there in verse 22 tells us that this happens right after all the baskets were collected after that that dinner, that feast. The shepherd feeds his sheep, then he made some of them get into a boat, and he dismissed the others. Jesus is the subject. The verbs are strong, and the crowds are the objects here. They're the ones being acted upon by Jesus. Jesus is the one doing the action. He compels them to do what they do. We talked last week about how people followed King Jesus. They followed him. We see that again very clearly here. Jesus gives commands and his people obey. His sheep obey. It's it's very clear who's in charge when Jesus is around. He speaks with authority. He shepherds his flock. So for us, what what does that mean for us who want to know him or who do know him? It means simply this. To know him, to love him, is 
to obey him. Jesus commands obedience. That's what he's like. And I want to tell you here at the very beginning of this, if that gives you a twinge of resentment or a little bit of resistance, you want, you want something else out of Jesus? I want you to withhold your judgment, okay? Withhold your judgment, keep reading, and then draw your conclusion. Let's keep reading then. In verse 23, look at verse 23 with you, with me. Matthew tells us that the reason Jesus sent everyone away from him was so that Jesus could pray. You see that in the text? Look at verse 23. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Have you ever stopped to wonder why Jesus prays? Think of how Jesus is prioritizing prayer here. What are the, the, the multitude of things that Jesus could be doing? He could be healing people, but he's praying. He could be raising people from the dead, but he's praying. He could be casting out demons, but he's praying. He could be feeding people, but he's praying. He could be just doing something so human as sleeping. I mean, he's got to be exhausted. He needs rest. It's been a long day. He's human. But he takes the time to pray. And this is not the first time we have seen this, and it will not be the last time that we see this in Jesus' life. This is pretty typical Jesus. So why is he praying? Well, for one, Jesus prays because he He delights in spending time with his father. From eternity past, remember this is the eternal son of God. From eternity past, the son of God has been in perfect communion with the father. So it shouldn't surprise us that that relationship with the father would continue when Jesus becomes a man. He's a faithful, loving, dedicated son who prioritizes time with his heavenly father. there's more to it. There's more to it than than mere communion with God, if that's a thing that we can say. We need to consider here what Jesus is praying for. I mean, think about the, the amount of time that he's spending praying here. If those people leave Jesus after dinner at, let's say it's getting dark, it's springtime, it's in at that latitude, let's say it's 630, getting dark. People get sent away at 6.30. And we know that he goes to the disciples at the fourth watch, which is sometime after 3 a.m. So from, let's give give or take, 7 to 3 a.m., maybe a little bit longer. That's a long time. That's a lot of prayer, isn't it? It's a lot of prayer. Eight hours of prayer. Is that right? Five, three, yeah. Eight hours of prayer, at least. What's he praying about? From what we know throughout the Gospels, we know that Jesus prays for a number of things. He prays for his enemies. He taught us to do that. He prays for provision. He taught us to do that. He prays for his own perseverance pers- perseverance in accomplishing, accomplishing his mission. Too much coffee this morning. Sorry. He prays for Jerusalem. But you also need to know this. When Jesus prays, he's often 
asking the Father to help the disciples, to give them faith, to protect them from sin, to protect them from temptation, from the evil one. In short, he prays that his disciples would be prepared for that day when he's no longer there with them on the earth. I can't say this for sure because the text does not specify, but I believe that given the facts that Peter's trial of faith is about to come upon him, and not long after that, in Matthew chapter 16, Peter's confession of faith will come, I believe Jesus is likely praying for the faith of his disciples, at least some during that long time that he's been praying. And why is that significant to us? Did you know that Jesus still is praying for his people? Did you know he prays for you? Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. That means even now, Jesus is making intercession. He's praying for you. And his intercession for you is what is keeping you in him. He saved you through his death, but your saving faith comes as a result of his prayers for you. So what's Jesus like? From just these first two verses, we see that he leads those he loves and he intercedes for those that he loves. Well, in verses 24 to 25, Jesus goes to those he loves. He goes to them in their time of need. Look at these verses with me. Verse 24, the disciples are in the boat. They're trying to sail or row. We don't know what the boat's like. They're trying to go into the wind in the waves. Matthew says they're being beaten by the waves, tortured by the waves. And they've been at it for hours. As long as Jesus has been praying, they've been battling the waves. And they're exhausted. They're miles from the shore. They're out in the middle of the sea. And look at verse 25. What does Jesus do in response to their need? He goes to them. What could Jesus have done? He could have walked by them at a distance. Right? He, he could have... He could have taken any route to the other side. He could have simply ignored their plight. He could have hired someone else to take him in a boat to the other side while he slept. He has that right, doesn't he? He's earned rest. He's fed thousands of people. He's taught. He's healed. He's earned it. He could have just waited till morning. But what does he do? He goes to his disciples because he was the one who commanded them to go to the sea to begin with. He loves those he sends. He goes to them in their need. He does not abandon them. In verses 26 and 27, he comforts those he loves. Keep reading. Jesus goes out to them. He walks out to them. and The, people, the disciples see him and they're terrified. Part of the disciples' fear is Jesus' fault, right? I mean, to their credit, a man walking on water, that's not something that you see every day. 
actually, that's not something you ever see, right? The, the only category that the disciples have for, for what's occurring in, in their collective imagination is a phantom. This is a ghost. And they're terrified. I mean, they, they think the ghost is coming for them. Their time has come, as if Jesus has sent them off to be punished or something like that. A part, part of that is Jesus' fault. And we have to acknowledge that. And when Jesus comes to them, we also have to see it's not a ghost. It's Jesus. Look at verse 27. Look at how Jesus interacts with them when he comes to them. Matthew says, immediately Jesus spoke to them. What's the, what, what do we need when we are racked with fear and anxiety? That's what we need, isn't it? We need to hear the voice of God. We need to hear the, the Lord's voice. We have the voice of God in Scripture spoken to us through the Spirit. The disciples have the voice of God there in the incarnate Son, the Word. And that's what Jesus gives the disciples. Immediately, he speaks to them. Immediately. He doesn't wait until they can recognize him. He immediately speaks to them. And look at the first thing he tells them. Look at verse 27. Take heart. Have courage. Take heart. And we've seen that before in Matthew. Twice. This is what Jesus told the paralyzed man who, who had been lowered through the roof by his friends to be healed by Jesus. Jesus told that man, take heart, your sins are forgiven. This is also what Jesus told the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And what Jesus says after take heart, we need to pay very careful attention to. Look again at verse 27. In your English translation, it says, take heart, it is I. A more rigid translation of that phrase from, from the Greek into the English could be read as, I am. I am. This is what he tells the Pharisees in, in John 8:58. Even before Abraham was, I am. Same thing is happening here. Take heart, I am. And when he says that, he's revealing himself as the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. I am that I am. Do you remember that in the Exodus? He's saying, he's Yahweh. He's the Lord. In short, what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting what the Lord told Joshua as Joshua was about to take Israel into the promised land. Take heart, the Lord told Joshua. Do not be afraid. For the Lord, Yahweh, I am, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. See what Jesus is doing? He comforts those he loves, and his comfort is not empty words. It's not just calm down, chill out, you're going to be fine. He gives them a reason to be comforted. He says, take heart. I am here. He gives them a ground for comfort. It's me, the Lord, the God of creation, your God. I'm with you. So what do we know then about Jesus? 
In the presence of our redeeming God, we need not fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So in the same way that Jesus told the paralytic man, he can take heart because Jesus, as only God can, forgave forgave his sins. And in the same way that Jesus, as the near and present Lord, can, can make a woman clean again and heal her, in the same way that the Lord can tell Joshua to take heart because he will be with him, Jesus gives the disciples and you and me a reason to take heart. He is with them. He's present with them. The Lord is near. They need not be afraid anymore. And Jesus comforts us in those same ways. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He relieves our anxieties. He's with us. So Jesus leads those he loves. He intercedes for those he loves. He goes to those he loves. He comforts those he loves by his word and his presence. Aren't you glad we have more than a headline? Let's keep going. Look at verse 28. In verse 28, we have to ask this question. What's going on with Peter? What's going on when Peter in verse 28 says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. What's he doing? If we see somebody doing that, if it's one of us, we think, oh, he's being brash. Right? Maybe he's being a show off. Or maybe he's showing faith, some of us might think. Some of us more skeptical might say he's testing God. Or is it all the above, right? Let's go slow here. Because if you, if you read this quickly, you, you skim over the language, and Matthew is not, he's not remiss in, in the words that he uses. He's very careful in the words that he chooses to, to, to reveal the story to us. So, so look at what Peter says to Jesus. He calls him Lord. You see that? Lord, if it is you. And that's what Peter almost always calls Jesus everywhere. You look at any time ta- Peter talks to Jesus in all four Gospels, he usually says, Lord, to him. Don't, don't overlook that he does this in response to hearing Jesus' voice. Right? Jesus speaks, and Peter says, Lord. Okay, so that's a call in action. Cause and effect. Peter has heard the Lord, and he responds to the Lord. He knows Jesus' voice. He recognized, this is the guy that I've been following around and, and listening to preach every day for the last couple of years. I say that because it qualifies how we understand Peter's request. Because Peter doesn't say, if it's really you, Jesus, then call me out on the water. He says, Lord, if it is you, or or more literally, Lord, if you are who you are, command me to come to you on the water. See, Peter is not trying to to verify that Jesus is Jesus. He knows he's Jesus. Peter's trying to verify that this Jesus, whom Peter knows as his teacher and master, is the one who has just shown himself to be God. The one who just trampled on the waters and said, I am. So through his request, Peter is verifying the 
trying to verify that Jesus is the Son of God. Because at the same time, Peter is remembering all these, these times that Jesus did these miracles. He remembers when Jesus commands something, it happens. Think, think back to the faith of the centurion, which was also back in chapter 8. Also close to the last time we saw a water miracle with Jesus. The centurion had come to Jesus out on the road and he had said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word. Only make the command. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled and said he had never seen faith like this in all of Israel. And so Jesus makes the command and the servant is healed. So Peter is having his centurion moment, isn't he? But by asking Jesus to command him to come out on the water, Peter's showing he believes Jesus to be the divine king, the one who commands something to happen, and it happens. He believes it, but he wants verification. It's, It's sort of one of those scenarios where I believe help my unbelief. That's what's happening with Peter. And so Matthew tells us Jesus commands him in verse 29, come. We should see, this tells us more about Jesus than it does about Peter. See, everybody in Matthew's gospel is trying to figure out who Jesus is. That's not unique to Peter. But the way that Jesus desires Peter to know him, the way that Jesus patiently bears this unusual request of Peter, shows us Jesus' love for Peter. And that is unique. So what does Jesus do? He calls Peter out. He calls Peter for the second time in his life. Peter's first calling was to follow, to listen, to watch, to learn who Jesus is. The second calling is to believe wholeheartedly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Matthew's showing us here that Jesus will do whatever it takes to bring his people to faith. That's why Jesus responds this way. Jesus will do whatever it takes to bring his people to faith, whatever it takes. If you've come to faith in Christ, it's because the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit conspired together to do whatever it took to bring you to saving faith. If you're praying for someone right now to come to faith, and I hope you are, keep praying. Keep praying. Praying, because our God will go to great lengths to bring his people to saving faith. He will do whatever it takes. Well, the rest of verse 29 tells us that Peter, compelled once again by Jesus' command, gets out of the boat. He gets out of the boat because Jesus commands him to, and he walks to Jesus. And apparently he made it all the way to Jesus. Matthew says he walked on the water and came to Jesus in verse 29. But in verse 30, Matthew tells us Peter's doubt took over. You see that? It's pretty pretty apparent. Do you remember the anatomy of doubt? 
message from a few weeks ago? I don't remember. Were we outside at that point? Yes, no. The Nazarenes? They didn't have faith in Nazareth? Okay. At all, the last six months is... But, but in, that, in that message, in that text, we saw how our hearts and minds on their own respond to Jesus. How the Nazarenes doubted that Jesus was the Messiah that he claimed to be. Because they knew him too well. They were too familiar with him. They saw him grow up. They knew his parents. They, they couldn't believe what they were hearing because they were so set on their own experiences, their own intuitions their own preconceived notions of the way things are and who this Jesus is. And that's what's happening to Peter here. He's doubting in the same way for that span of time that he truly believes that Jesus is Lord, heart, soul, and mind. He's walking on water. He's walking by faith and not by sight. But then Peter, or Matthew tells us, Peter saw the wind. Sight takes over. Peter saw the wind. Look at verse 30. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid. What's the cause? His sight. He was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, there's an old trope that goes with this, and maybe you've heard this before. As long as Peter's eyes were on Jesus, he was able to walk on water. You heard that? And if only you'll keep your eyes on Jesus, you can walk on water too. As if the moral of this story is to keep your eyes on Jesus. There's some truth to that. A little bit. Right? Colossians 3.2 reminds us we are set our minds on things above, the heavenly reality. That's, that's true because of Christ's death and resurrection, not on things of the earth. That's where our mind is to be. Romans 12 says we are to, have, to, to renew our minds. And through that keeping our minds on things above, Colossians tells us, we can live in obedience to Christ. So yes, keep your eyes on Jesus. For, for a moment here, Peter, by faith, had, had truly set his mind on the heavenly reality, hadn't he? That, that reality that, that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. He's the king. He's Lord. He's creator, God over all. And that reality enables him to obey Christ. To walk on the water. But then Peter saw, with his eyes, he saw the wind. He saw the wind and his earthly reality became more real. Became more real to him than the truth of who Jesus is. And that's when Peter began to sink. That's what doubt is. It's elevating our experiences, what we think, what we know, what our understanding of the world is. It's elevating that above who God has revealed himself to be. That's doubt. But make no mistake. The point of this story is not keep your eyes on Jesus. The point of this story is that Jesus saves. It's not, if only Peter would have avoided looking at the wind, then he would have been okay. It's not about Peter, it's not about me, and it's not about you. Because you and I are going to look at the wind. We will look at the wind. So long as we are clothed in flesh, we're going to look at the wind. We are going to elevate 
our circumstances and our anxieties and our own imaginations above the reality of who Christ is. We're going to doubt and we're going to sin in that doubt. Our trials are going to become more real to us than Christ's saving work. You're going to doubt. But by the grace of God, your salvation and my salvation does not depend on us. See, the story doesn't end with Peter looked at the wind and began to sink. That's not where it ends. That's not the climax of the story. Look again at verse 30. It's at that sinking moment that Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus, look at verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand to save him. Who is, if this is a movie, who is the center of the shot here? Is it Peter? Heavens, no. It's Jesus. Jesus is the point of this story. It's not Peter, and it's not me and you. And what does this tell us about Jesus? What's he like? Not only will Jesus do anything to get his people into faith, Jesus keeps us in faith. The compassion of Jesus, the the love he has for those that the Father has given to him, it's so great. It's so great that he immediately grasps a hold of Peter and pulls him up. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. He'll hold me fast. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. That's Jesus. That's what Jesus is like. It's no surprise then that that when the one who tramples the waters and calls himself the I am gets back into the boat, the wind stops blowing. He doesn't have to say it this time. It's calm again. And what happens? The disciples fall on their faces and worship him. God has revealed himself to these disciples so that where they once would have said, who is this guy? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now they say in praise, Truly, you are the Son of God. Friends, that is the only right response to Jesus. He's the one who intercedes for us, so we praise him. He's the one who comes to us in our time of need, the only one who always will, and so we praise him. He's the one who comforts us by his word, and so we praise him. He's the one who will do anything to ensure that our faith is in him. And so we praise him. He's the one who rescues us and keeps our faith in him, who holds fast to us. And so the only response is to worship him. 
When we're drowning in doubt, our only right response is to worship the one who reveals himself as God to us. Truly, we can say with the disciples, truly, he is the son of God. Truly, he is our redeemer. He's our savior. He's our king. He's our God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you this morning. We're here because of you. We are secure in the presence of God because of you. We praise you this morning, Jesus. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending us, Jesus. We thank you that he perfectly reveals who you are and, and what you're like. We thank you that when we worship Jesus, we're living in obedience to you. We're not worshiping an idol or something less than God.